Hey, welcome to Trailbreak Radio, the Winter Wildlands Alliance podcast. I'm David Page with a head cold I picked up in Idaho and I'm still trying to shake. And this is episode 10, kind of a bonus episode featuring a conversation I had recently with pro skier Amy Engerbretson about her new snowmobile climate advocacy movie called The Hypocrite. It should be streaming by the time you hear this. I definitely recommend you check it out and not just for the snowmobile porn. I first met Amy a decade ago, back in 2014, when I was working on a sprawling piece about decision-making in avalanche terrain for Powder Magazine. We sat at a picnic table by the railroad tracks in Truckee one summer afternoon. The previous winter, Amy had been involved in a fairly high-profile incident in Grizzly Gulch in Utah. If you know Alta, Grizzly Gulch is a convenient little hit right up from the parking lot where quite a few late-afternoon Powder-slash-magazine covers have been crafted. Amy was out that day with a talented photographer by the name of Adam Clark. You may have seen his outstanding work in numerous issues of Trailbreak magazine. Anyway, the snow was deep, the light was perfect, they nailed the shot. But then Amy ended up fully buried in a terrain trap, like snow in the mouth, can't move, can't see buried. Horrifying. I'll let you find the whole harrowing tale in the Human Factor 1.0, which I understand lives on somewhere on the interwebs. But suffice it to say, it was pretty much dumb, shining luck that she got to breathe again. And of course, as if being buried in an avalanche is not trauma enough, she was then subjected to voluminous and withering social media criticism from folks all over the world who were absolutely certain they would never be so stupid as she had been. Here's the thing about Amy. She's got guts. She didn't slink off into the shadows. She took the judgment head on, looked it right in the eye. She talked openly and intelligently about the mistakes they'd made that day, about the things they'd overlooked, how their brains had worked, imperfectly as it happened, so that the rest of us simple humans could actually learn from the experience. In many ways, that's what she's doing once again with this new movie, taking the judgment she feels for the choices she's made and turning it into a provocative conversation we can all benefit from. A quick side note before we jump in. Toward the end of our conversation, Amy and I do nibble around the edges of the tension between those who primarily like to ride snow machines and those who primarily prefer to be as far away from them as they can possibly get. There's a lot of talk in the film about the need for everyone in the so-called outdoor state to come together to advocate for systemic change. I couldn't agree more wholeheartedly. What keeps us apart? One thing I would say, maybe more than anything else, is that we're not listening to each other. We indulge in zero-sum thinking, it's all this or all that. We make assumptions about other people's motives. We judge, we feel judged. We call each other liars and hypocrites instead of seeing imperfect humans struggling imperfectly for something better. We build straw man arguments to make ourselves feel righteous. We say, oh, they just hate us, or they judge us, or they like wildlife better than people, or we're always the ones who lose. Instead of actually listening to other people's concerns and desires, trying to understand and working to find ways we can all compromise, maybe even sacrifice, to make things better for everybody. I don't know. I think if we're going to get anywhere on anything, we're going to have to start by looking hard at the assumptions we make about other people. There's my opening rant. And with that, here's my conversation with Amy. Thanks for listening. This episode was generously sponsored by Mammoth Brewing Company's Ski Kind Mountain Lager, the perfect companion for your outdoor adventures. Stay tuned to hear more about this backcountry partnership. 
So I'm stoked to be here with Amy Engerbretson. Amy's a professional skier, TV host, host and producer of the Long Underwear podcast from Warren Miller Entertainment, movie producer, Tahoe local, cowgirl, climate change advocate. She's been on the cover of all the best magazines. What have I left out, Amy? Well, I think we have to say wannabe cowgirl, but cowgirl enthusiast. Got a lot of hats on the wall behind you. <laughs> That's true. Poser. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen you two-step in a movie. There we go. That's all it takes. So first question from, from a, a father. I've got two kids. Your dad, super well-known pro ski photographer. Uh, what was it like growing up with that? And I guess more specifically, you know, as much as I've tried to turn my two kids into mountain kids, they've both kind of disappeared and gone off to the urban landscape. So I guess part of my question is, how did your dad do it? How did he end up with a mountain girl? And, and was there a part of you before you came back to the mountains that uh, wanted to like fuck off to Paris and smoke cigarettes and paint paintings or... Well, I did that actually. Oh, you already did that. Yeah. <laughs> I lived in Paris in college. Um, the yeah, I mean, the reality is, you know, everybody always wants to ask you, like, oh, how'd you become a pro skier? And it's funny because in my world, that was kind of just the family business. Like, my dad was a professional skier until I was like a preteen, teenager type age, and then he then he became like moved behind the lens and started filming and being a photographer. And I grew up here in Tahoe in Olympic Valley. And so it was just like everybody was a pro skier. And so it didn't feel like that special. Um, and I think the hard part maybe like you're finding like raising your kids. But for me, growing up somewhere like Tahoe, like I had no context for how unique and how special and how wonderful our life was in the mountains, right? I thought that's just what life was like for everybody. And unfortunately, I think you take it for granted. You know, I think it's hard as a young person to have that awareness of um, how special the lives that like we got to grow, like I got to grow up in really was. Um, and I, you know, my dad wanted me to be a ski racer and an athlete and all these things. And of course, I'm like, no, I want to be a ballerina and I want to do theater and I want to move to the city. And so um, he was really I, I think part of that was like a bummer to him, but he's still kind of like engaged in and was like, join the board of the directors for my dance team. And he uh, built the sets for the musicals and helped produce the musicals. And so he was always really involved. And then I ended up going to college in Chicago eventually and really wanted to live in a city. I wanted to get out of California. I wanted to do all these things. And he was, I don't think he saw it coming, but you know, I did, I called him about six months before graduating. I was living in Chicago. And of course, once I like moved out of the mountains, all of a sudden, every chance I got, I was rushing back to the mountains every spring break, every holiday, all summer. Um, I called him about six months before graduating. I was like, I think I know what I want to do when I graduate. And I'm like, I want to move home and start competing and try to get sponsored. And um, I think he's like the only dad in the world that was like so hyped that like, right when I was graduating college, <laughs> I was like, I want to be a ski bum. And dad's like, finally. <laughs> but uh, yeah, he was like really happy about that. And, you know, I think it was cool because he, you know, I was grateful that he was also supportive of me doing all these other things that um, wasn't the picture he had in his mind of what he thought like his little ski racer daughter was going to be. And But now we get to work together all the time. And uh, we were just out shooting this morning up at Palisades Tahoe and um, still ski together all the time. And I think it just that ability to go out and see what it's like other places just it grew so much gratitude in me and like f like 
it's almost like the mountains and skiing and ski culture. It was so much a, a part of who I was that like, I didn't even, I didn't even know that. Like it wasn't this separate thing. It was like so much. And I didn't realize that till I moved away from the mountains. And I realized that there's just this hole in my life and I went running right back. So I don't know, hopefully your yeah, kids awesome. maybe do yeah, some of the same. I don't know. <laughs> I think, I think I'm starting to see glimpses of that. I think that's, I'm encouraged by that. Um, so to cut to the chase, speaking of shooting and, and mountain life, your latest movie, Hypocrite, super awesome. Um, I was really stoked to see that at uh, whatever that was, that POW film screening a couple weeks ago uh, or before the holidays. And um, it's just really so good. So um, so personal, internal, honest. Um, you direct you are the subject of it you executive produced um it just it grapples with a subject that i think we all really grapple with around the lifestyles that we lead and and how you know if we look at it from a certain angle the lifestyles that we lead are maybe adversely impacting the lifestyles we want to lead and and um and what's our responsibility in that and and you know, as you put it, by burning fossil fuels, I'm contributing to the death of the thing that I love most. Or even more succinctly, you said, I am the problem, which I think all of us have felt at some point. So um, what was, was there one moment when you were like, okay, this is, uh, this is the film I got to do. This is the project I have to do next. It was not one moment. It It took me, I've had the idea basically from like the moment I started really engaging with climate advocacy work and engaging with Palmore, like part of the reason it took me so long to really get more involved is because I felt like I was going to be a hypocrite. And then like, as soon as I did, I was like, oh, you're such a phony, you're such a hypocrite. Like they're going to find you out. Like you're not doing enough. You're not perfect enough. Um, and so I feel like it was like a subject that I grappled with almost like, I mean, for it's been about a part of a decade that I've kind of dealt with that issue. And as far as this film goes, you know, through my work with POW, I got to learn a lot about why our system is the way it is, why we think the way we think, why we do the things we do. And even more so, I got to learn about like where changes make the most difference, like what things have the biggest impact, like where you can be most effective. Like I learned so, so, so much. And like, as I was learning that, I was like, gosh, like this is really changing my desire to put my energy and effort here because I actually am starting to learn that I could, it's not about me being perfect, but like I could actually make a difference in all these ways without being perfect because being perfect isn't available, right? And so then when I was getting trapped in this like paralysis of perfection, like that's that apathy shitstorm basically, you know? And so once I started learning, expanding, I was like, okay, well, what if all these people in my community, because the more I got involved with POW, the more I would hear the chirping on social media or even just like my friends, my community, the people in the town and area of Truckee Tahoe, like, chirping about oh so and so such a hypocrite saying this that and the other thing and i'm like oh but like if you knew the whole story you know you wouldn't think that or you wouldn't know that and so you know i started having this idea i was like somebody needs to start this conversation you know somebody needs to open up this because i think a lot of the climate advocacy focused media that we've been absorbing over the last 10 to 20 years from the action sports industry has been very similar. It's It's been, um, 
you know, here's this beautiful thing, we have to protect it, which is great. And like, that's true, right? It's just that it wasn't, I find that like, there was a limitation to the activation capabilities of that kind of message. And like, I felt like we could be telling, I wanted people to be getting the information and training I was getting at POW. And I wanted an ability to like, address this information, like, or this issue straight on. But honestly, like I kind of came up for the I with the idea for the film like three years before I even applied for the grant. The the film got started with a, a grant from Protect Our Winners um that I applied for in June of twenty twenty two. Um so it took me like three years to just build up the confidence to actually do it, you know? Yeah. Like it's something that's been in my mind for like and every single time someone would call me and I didn't have it called the hypocrite at first. Um but it would it would come into my mind every time someone would say something on Instagram or and it was also hard because like as I was activating with POW and getting really into climate advocacy work, my career was taking off in a way where like sled skiing was becoming a pretty like mandatory is the wrong word, but man was it helpful. And I was liking it. You know, and not only was I liking it, I was liking the people I was meeting that were a part of that community. And so it was like so conflicting, right? Like, um, so yeah, like I definitely, it was not like a, I have to, it was like, oh God, I really have to do this, but I'm kind of, and I remember too, you know, I, I finally actually kind of narrowed down the concept, decided that like the only way to do this kind of film is to call it the hypocrite. Like you have to, you tell somebody like, Hey, I'm going to make a climate change snowmobile movie and people go, and then you say, I'm calling it the hypocrite. And they go, Oh, I'm listening. And I was like, we can't call it anything else. Um, And so I wrote the grant application and I didn't find out that I got the grant until September of 2022. And then I remember when I like got the, the email or whatever, the phone call that I received the grant, I was like, Oh shit. No, I really have to make this movie. <laughs> <laughs> no, I have to face it. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I really love all the discussion around imperfect advocacy and, and you know, giving us permission to, to not have all our ducks entirely in a row in order to make change, right? Um, and certainly, and I'd heard this elsewhere, but, but it was, it was great to hear Auden Chandler in such a succinct way, and, and that Harvard professor Naomi Oreskes. Yeah, you know, really, really paint the picture of how this whole concept of carbon footprint was really a way for big oil to duck responsibility, right? Exactly. Um, and and I and it's it's funny, and I love that it's called hypocrite because I mean, we get it. I get it the same all the time. It's like you know, in the advocacy world, I spend a lot of time in the car driving around, burning fossil fuel, going to meetings. Um, we just had a conference this fall invited people from all over the country who jetted in or drove in to talk about nature-based climate solutions. And of course we get these emails saying, what the fuck? Um, so I get it. And I really, it's great to just look that in the eye and say like, what, what's the value of what we're doing? And, and, you know, I, I can't remember who it was, who I think it was Chris Rubens who was, was talking yeah. about saying like, just absolutely making sure you're making the most of that day, knowing the impacts that you're having. I appreciate all that. Um, to play devil's advocate and just because, you know, just making a film and calling yourself a hypocrite and, and advocating is step one, but then there's still sort of this grappling with, you know, does that really let us off the hook? Like if I say, okay, I'm imperfect, but, um, 
I'm moving forward and I'm waiting for systemic change. I mean, I sort of Ooh. think about, go ahead. But what you said there, I'm waiting for systemic change. Right. I'm, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to take myself off the hook and I'm not trying to give anybody else an opportunity to take themselves off the hook. I want to make sure we're putting ourselves on the right hook. That makes sense. And I, and I don't want you to say, Hey, I'm waiting for the system to change. No, we need to change the system. And rather than point fingers and waste all this energy accusing each other and creating all this guilt and shame that really is counterproductive. I mean, this whole conversation is about energy, right? And one of those energies is human energy. And where are we putting our human energy? And what I really hope is that like we can take that energy to collectively come together to demand the systemic change we need to be able to make those choices and live those lifestyles in a better, more responsible way. I definitely like, I don't want to take myself off any hooks. I want to open up a pathway for action and places where you are getting blamed and finger pointing and called names and shaming other people and yourself. Like that's not a pathway for action. And the reality is that infighting is actually specifically precisely what the fossil fuel industry wants us to do. Totally. Like that is it, you yeah. know? Yeah. So I, I yeah, I want to kind of circle back to the systemic part. Um, but on the personal responsibility front, I mean, how did you, I mean, I thought one of the most interesting intense moments in the film was that that discussion with chris where mm -hmm. i mean i i met chris once upon a time we went snowmobiling up into the cathedrals in the provincials or in uh yeah in the cathedrals in in canada and um i i thought he had some really good you know it's like well, if we're not going to change who's going to change right mm -hmm. like yes on the one hand yes we're all going to work hard we're going to change the systems on the other hand like even though you know, okay, let's say I, I'm not going to eat red meat. And is that going to really impact, um, you know, the, the, the beef industry? Is it really going to impact climate change? No, but at least I can say, well, this is a part that I'm doing. I mean, it's like that Naomi Oreski saying, well, I've got solar panels on my roof. Um, you know, we, it, is it, is it still important for us to carpool and and recycle and do all these things, even though we know that it's a drop in the bucket at the same time? Yeah, I mean, I think that it's very important to still do those things. I think that the trap we get pulled into is that if we're doing those things, we think that's actually putting us off the hook, uh, right? Yeah. So you have to live and examine life, right? You have to see where are the places that I can make a difference, make change, be mindful, you know? Be thoughtful about my actions, you know, um, how and why I'm doing things like that's always going to be part of this. And Chris and I have always had this like kind of dichotomy about it, even when we have both got brought on to Atomic and we got asked to speak on a panel about sustainability um, for the Atomic uh, the whole company. You know, we have different perspectives, but I think we both respect each other's perspectives and that I think that he knows and acknowledges like not everybody has the luxury to start up a farm and i think another trap we get pulled into this is like people like you and i people like myself and basically anyone i'm going to see on a trailhead anybody i'm going to see on the chairlift anybody i'm going to see in this town we're all really privileged to even be able to consider our individual carbon footprints and like the reality is 
the effects of climate change are going to disproportionately affect minorities and people of color drastically more directly and quickly. And those are often the people that do not have the privilege to consider an individual carbon footprint. And that's where also our systemic responsibility comes in. It's like, I have the privilege. I actually live in a shady hole and I've been told I can't get, you know, uh, solar panels, but like I, in theory, would I have the privilege of trying to put on solar panels. I have the privilege of being mindful about where I'm buying my meat products for when I, when I can, I have, you know, I'm someone that could potentially have the privilege of buying an electric vehicle. I'm the person who has the privilege of choosing to carpool or bike, you know? And so like, that is great, but I also need to make sure I'm mindful of the fact that like, if I were to change the system to make it that like, those are the options available for everybody, then we're addressing the social justice part of it. Right? Like, because we all get really wrapped up and like, well, we should be vegan. And it's like, well, that's not really like the reality for a lot of people in the world. And those are the people that are actually you can get whammed most by this. And, you know, in the film, um, you know, you watch a film, there's a hundred things you wish you would have said differently. And I think we, we talk about how much we want to protect what we love and our passions, but like, we're also talking about preserving humanity here, you know, totally. like, I know it's, it, it's really impactful for us to be like, Hey, we're never going to ski again. Or they're already projecting snowless winters by 2030 in California. Oh my God. But like, um, it's kind of this thing. I think a lot of the rhetoric around, I went to this really cool, like climate optimism talk, um, at Westminster university in Salt Lake city last year. And a lot of the rhetoric around like climate advocacy is like, do less, do less, do less, be less bad, do less bad. And I, I think that's a really, like, if we're talking, even if like, like the bad guys, guys always have like really good marketing. Right. So like, I feel like our, the good guys need better marketing and better, like rhetoric would be like, do more, you know, like it, don't be less bad, be more good. And so like that includes carpool when you can if vegan is reasonable for you do that if if that makes sense for you you know do what you need to do don't bring shame into it though don't shame others try to bring others with you and bring them with you by upload uplifting not like pointing fingers and pushing down and there's so much infighting and i think one of the key kind of parts that they get we get to in the film is what pal calls the outdoor state which is 50 million people recreate in the u.s every year and this idea is that like if we were to make like uh political coalition out of that group of people it would be a really meaningful group the nra is about three million people so like compare those numbers even if we were to activate half or a third of the outdoor state and so but there's so much infighting amongst all of our, our different user groups the snowmobiling and the skiing is a really easy um conflict point to use as like an example for the bigger issue you know but i think it exists in all different ways and i just think that asking people to be less bad is harder than asking people to do more good. Yeah. And that's great. my, that's my hope is just a way of just rephrasing it, but that doesn't mean like we should go throw gasoline all over the fire or all over the woods and just throw plastic water bottles anywhere. Like that's not it at all. You know, right. yep. so, I just think that saying the only people that are invited to this are the people that are vegan, that drive electric cars, that ride their bike everywhere. Like, those can't be the only people invited to this party in this conversation. Hundred percent. You kind of beat me to it, but this this <laughs> idea about unity. No, I mean it's it's so powerful. It's so important. First of all, fifty million, I think, is a gross underestimation. Underestimate, of the size definitely. Of the outdoor state. I was just seeing the latest SIA numbers are like twenty-seven million human-powered winter recreationists. So, I mean, 
Yeah, then that blows our 50 million out of the water, doesn't it? Exactly. If you really look at the whole picture. But anyway, um more importantly, what what is holding us back? I mean, let's just cut to the cut to the chase. Snowmobilers, skiers, what's the problem? What keeps us divided in your mind? Yeah, I mean, I I think that finding unity in a very wide ranging group is always difficult right and the reality is like what we call the outdoor state um spans a pretty dynamic political spectrum the kind of rough, rough estimates that pow has looked at is about 30 percent liberal 30 percent conservative and 30 percent kind of undecided um or not undecided but independent um, is the word I meant to say. So kind of like a pretty big span of ideological values, potentially. I think that's a hard thing to unify. Um, and I think that there's also this sense that people go to the outdoors to escape. And I think there's been for a long time this kind of attitude of like, hey, keep your politics off the trail. Keep your politics off the trail. Hey, I'm here to escape the real world. Don't, don't bring that in here. Um, and I, while that's lovely thought, we don't have that privilege anymore. <laughs> like, you know, like the reality is like we've got, that ship has sailed. Like we don't have the privilege of like leaving politics off the trail right now because politics and political will are the things that are going to make the biggest difference quickest. And so I think my, I think those are the challenges, right? Like we have a huge group of people uh with a bunch of different ideological spectrum backgrounds and it's also a place where like people are trying to escape reality you know they're not trying to face it and i think if you're somebody that spends a lot of time in the outdoors you are seeing the facts on the wall you know anybody that's participating in anything in outdoors right now is being affected by climate change at some point whether you're camping in the summer and you're smoked out or you know we were before we started recording talking about how there's literally no snow in California right now, you know, whatever it is, there's people are getting affected. So you're seeing those realities. So I think that people are just having to face that. Yeah. But I think that the biggest barrier, like part of what drove me to make this film and try to try to just start a conversation from a different perspective around this topic. I think a lot of people that are in like the gray area are just scared of being called a hypocrite. I think they're scared of not being good enough. Like even I felt that way. Like when Pow was started by Jeremy Jones in Tahoe and it was a whole thing and everyone in Tahoe was doing it. And so I was like, yeah, yeah, okay, I'll get a hat and I'll get the sticker. But like, I'm not a climate advocate. Like I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not sciencey. I'm not political. And I think that that's the place where like a lot of people are in where like, they know climate change is real and happening. They know it's human caused. They know that they need and should be doing something about it. They don't know what to do. And they also don't think they're qualified. And like that kind of fear is, I think, our biggest block to unity. And I think it's it's exasperated when you have these like user groups that kind of like butt heads like that, you know? Yeah. I mean, one of the other things that when you start talking about that big tent or the you know, that, that wide spectrum of ideological values. Um, on some levels, I think that has been the brilliant success of POW, that it is, it has done a really good job at messaging and, and, and I think more people than ever are believing in climate change and are understanding that, that it has impacts people across the spectrum. I mean, certainly more than a decade ago or even five years ago. Um, 
and I, I wonder if part of the division that still exists is when we get down into the weeds and we start talking about solutions, right? I mean, like we were in the trenches too on the Inflation Reduction Act, amazing piece of legislation and a totally crazy divided Congress. But it was really, you know, it was all very positive, like let's incentivize clean energy, you know, it didn't ask anyone to make any hard choices. And that I think is where like, okay, great. Like up to a certain point, that's terrific. We can all come together on that. The question is when, how do we get to a place where, cause I think eventually, and maybe I'm wrong on this, but I'd love to hear your thoughts. Like, I think at some point we're all going to have to make hard choices. And, and I think we, we need to do it. You know, the system needs to help us. The system needs to make us do it. But I think when we get down to it, like, what are those systemic changes that need to happen? And how are we going to participate in that? How is that going to impact our lifestyles? Yeah. Well, I think I think our system is going to have to make really hard choices and changes. And I think there are companies and entities and industries that need to make hard decisions. But I actually think that the incentive-based approach is honest and is truthful. And even if you look at, you know, I think a lot of times, again, like climate rhetoric, people go to a film about climate change or talk about climate change, and they think they're just going to get yelled at about the glaciers melting, the polar bears dying, and how what horrible people they are and how they need to just crawl in a hole and do nothing. Um, and the reality, the more I learn, you know, one of the, we did a show in Tahoe with at Palisades, um, and we had a scientist who's in the sustainability department at BlackRock Investments it's good business to address climate change and there is money to be made in renewable energy that's not in our economy right now and the gains very much outweigh the losses and i think that you have one industry that's actually not even that big of an industry really driving the show really driving the narrative the rhetoric and that is what needs to change. You know, this there's the stat that everyone likes to throw around that, that has problems with it, but that um, less than 100 um, companies contribute to over 70% of greenhouse gas emissions annually. That's the reality, right? Like, those are the companies that need to make the hard decisions, you know? And I think the reality is, like, say we make the hard decision that recreational skiing is not – uh, reasonable for um, because it burns too much fossil fuels and we need to stop to save the planet. And that's like, if we were to cut out like all recreational skiing, I don't think we're putting a dent in climate change, you know, certainly not by eliminating all snowmobiles or all heli skiing or whatever, you know, like that's, um, that's not where the meat of the problem lies. And, and I think that like, it's hard that we've had to waste so much energy reconvincing people that climate change is real right because back in the 80s we all knew climate change is real then the fossil fuel industry invented climate denial so then we had to fight that fight they lost that fight so then they're like well what else can we do well let's make it everybody's individual fault let's paralyze them in shame and guilt and make sure they don't do anything while we keep doing the same thing we've always been doing you know and i think that like the more i talk to people like naomi oreskes or auden or i go to these different climate solutions uh, seminars and talks and these different trainings we do at POW and these speakers they bring in, like 
the systems need to change. And also like a really amazing way someone explained this to me a while back is like, say you're working at a company and something drastic has happened. Shit is hitting the fan and you need to make big cuts fast. And now you're not going to the bottom of the budget sheet and cutting out lattes and coffees. You're going to the top. You're going to the top dog who's getting paid the most and you're starting your cuts there. And that's what we need to do within our system, right? Like we're worried about the coffees and the $4 lattes, which add up and are important. And you can totally make meaningful changes in your budget by addressing those things. But it's small, it's incremental, it's slow. And it doesn't really add up to, you know, the six-figure salaries up here at the top that could go. You know, I think that's a really interesting way to think about it. And I think that if we want to try to be more moderate and less polarizing about this issue, I think bringing it, talking about it in an incentivized way and in trying to do a better job at talking about the the money and the jobs creation opportunities that are available here, you know, and also this shifting of subsidies and where does the money go to do the research you know everybody immediately wants to come hit you with the lithium issues right you start talking about electrification and everybody comes at you with mining issues and it's like well well, yeah but we need to reallocate funds to put the brilliant minds of this planet to work to find these solutions because they're there we're just pouring money into something that doesn't work and we need to take that those funds and we need to put them other places we need to stop additional drilling. We need to stop additional exploration for drilling. If we burn all the oil that we know of that we already have access to and on, you know, within all the reserves right now, we're already too hot. So what are we doing doing more exploring? What are we doing spending money on more exploration? You know, and it's not a perfect, there's no perfect solution. It's not going to be a perfect transition. And there, there is no perfect answer to any of this. And I think that that's really hard because that's really scary, you know? And I think a lot of people see that and say that and they're like, okay, we just need to crawl in a hole and die, you know? Yep. Okay, so to set aside sort of the big, scary climate change picture for a second, because I think we're both in the same camp that like, you know, the idea of, oh, getting rid of snowmobiling or getting rid of chairlifts or getting rid of our cars is a red herring. Um, I mean, all cars in the planet, that's not a red herring. No, I The I totally way agree. we and, transport but, but around the world is a that, huge thing we need to deal right. with. But you're not going to get rid of cars by telling a certain set of people that they have to get rid of their cars. You're going to have to yeah. make it impossible to own a car financially and to provide other ways for people to get around. Yeah. And that's how you transition out of it rather than saying to, you know, this group of people, you got to stop driving your cars. Um. But then there, are, there, there's sort of this whole other side of climate change that, w- as a public, we haven't really talked that much about, or we start, we're starting to, but it doesn't have as much narrative around it as the clean energy emissions piece, and that's, you know, the biodiversity crisis. It's uh, forest health. It's, um, you know, it's 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 clean air, clean water stuff in ways that you know don't directly relate to how we're moving around. Um, but like as an example, and I, I just, there's this other side of it, which is we do have these impacts on, on, on our places, on, on wildlife, on other people. And, and how do we manage that piece in a systemic way also? 
is is something that I end up having to grapple with a lot in my position. And just as an example, one thing where, you know, we all waded into a bunch of controversy in the Tetons around the mm-hmm. bighorn sheep. I'm, I don't know if you mm-hmm. followed that, but I did. You know, it's like okay, we're down to whatever it is, fifty, sixty individuals in this in this endemic population, and they're not able to survive. And and it, you know, it turns out the sort of straw that breaks the camel's back is is us mountaineers. Like we're out there, you know. There's pretty good evidence that we're scaring sheep during their most sensitive time of the winter. And so, you know, one camp immediately says, "Wait, don't blame me." Like it's because really that it's it's a long process and it's not just the skiers it's like de- all the development over a century like the cutting off of the migration corridors there's it's such a big thing but again that straw is us and then what's the solution and and you know we spent a lot of time trying to advocate for some dynamic solutions that involved skiers that where skiers could do the monitoring where we're doing you know it's not just hard closure of the Tetons. It's hard closure of certain places during certain times. Some of it's voluntary, like what works, you know, and trying to really get into the weeds on some of this stuff is, is what we do. And it's really hard. And and that kind of brings it back to this tension between snowmobilers and Nordic or backcountry skiers. I mean, I, I, you know, we all know that like, there is no such thing as skiers versus snowmobilers. Cause we're all both things mm-hmm. uh, or a lot of us are. Mm-hmm. Um, but, Another place in the movie that was pretty powerful to me and and sort of, you know, I don't know, alternately triggering or just just, you know, got me thinking was Duncan Lee talking about the stink eye at the trailhead and feeling judged. And, you know, so much of the movie is about feeling judged and not judging, feeling shame or not shaming people, um, you know, which are really personal emotions around stuff that shouldn't really be emotional. but um he said, um, you know, he's like, uh, people don't like us, seems like it. And I can imagine that, you know, there's that feeling. Um, you know, you're you're unloading your sled, somebody's going Nordic skiing, there's all this mythology around. It's always a 60-year-old woman on Nordic skis with a with a pole that wax the snowmobiler it's the same with mountain bikers on certain trails i've exactly. actually I've, I've been hit by a hiking pole by a hiker when i was on my mountain bike <laughs> exactly this episode is brought to you by mammoth brewing company's ski kind mountain lager in the grand tradition of high alpine lagers this easy day drinking beer is best served snow chilled but it will remain eminently drinkable, even when it's been in the bottom of your pack all day. It pairs well with acoustic instruments, strangers, good terrain, and of course, wild snow. Also, it's always kindful to wild critters and our sacred places. This beer gives back to the environment. Proceeds from every can sold, every pint and every keg go to our national Ski Kind Stewardship Fund to help support local winter trailhead projects and our backcountry ambassadors. And remember, However you slide over the snow, do it with kindness. Learn about our backcountry responsibility code and take the Ski Kind pledge at skikind.org. Don't forget to drink responsibly and ski it in, ski it out with Ski Kind Mountain Lager. Find Ski Kind Mountain Lager throughout California and Nevada, specifically available at Mammoth Brewing and Lead Dog Tasting Rooms. Please ask for it by name and let it snow. 
but one of the things that yeah. Duncan said there was people just have a lot of people just have the wrong idea. What what do you think he meant by that? Yeah, I think the, so. The reality, like the behind the curtain of of the movie, is that like that conversation with Duncan was really in depth and took up a lot of time in the movie, and we ended up having to cut a lot of it out, which took away quite a bit of context. Um, when I reached out to Duncan to d be part of the film, he was like, I don't think so, man. Like, pal doesn't want people like me. They've made that clear. And I think that that's kind of where that whole tone of that conversation stemmed from, of someone like Duncan, who is very uh, concerned about the environment, about the climate, about the land, all those things. I think through different things in his experience in this community has felt like he's not welcome to be part of the solution. And I think a lot of different user groups that are maybe put into a bucket of like, oh, all motorized users are Trumpies or whatever. You know, I think a lot of people think that way, you know, just like everybody that thinks everybody that's ski touring is some sort of a hippie. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that like the context behind that is like feeling unwelcome to be part of the solution to be part of the conversation, to be at the table. And I think that people having the wrong idea of like that all motorized users just don't care or just don't believe in it. I think that that's the problem. And I think that one thing that really impacted me when like I first got into snowmobiling is I thought that like when I came into that world as a skier, as a woman driving a Subaru with California plates, like I was going to be unwelcome. Like get out of here, you Fruit Loop, you hippie, go back to California, da da da. And I was so shocked by, and not just like the skiers, like the other pro skiers I'd go out sledding with, like the random sledders out in the field, you know, they roll, and I'm an idiot, right? I'm still an idiot on my sled and I'm wrapped around a tree. I'm in the biggest hole of your life. And rather than these people, like literally over and over and over again, these like random, and this is out in like Wyoming, Montana, like <laughs> real, what I would perceive as very different people than me they stop and they're just so psyched to help out. And there's this complete lack of judgment. Um, there's another word I'm, I'm getting for it, like- Self-righteousness. Well, or there's this like, um, they don't like belittle you about it. They're like, well, you probably shouldn't have been trying to do, they're like, hey, good for you for trying to get out of it. And they, they don't have this like condescending nature to them. like my experience of the snow like because so much of sledding is fucking up and fixing it and helping the people you're with and i think that that kind of like my kind of dumb and insignificant way of thinking about this like if we could rally around addressing these issues with the environment with the climate the way we rally around a stuck sled like then we're doing something people are willing to like sacrifice and like do what they need to do to like help you out and i think that that I think that like this kind of idea of like motorized users being lumped into an ideological category, being people that don't care, that, um, you know, don't want to help, they don't want to be part of solution. I think that's what Duncan means by like, they have the wrong idea. Because I think that for the most part, they are people that, that do care and we want to work together. And it's like, it's just one of those things where somebody has to stop throwing the first punch, you know? Right. And no, I that's think that it, like- that's, that's exactly yeah. it. I mean, I think that's, and 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 that's where- you know, I wanted to have this conversation and I want to keep having this conversation is how do we diffuse that? Because mm -hmm. on the one hand, there's no question that exists, right? People judge each other. 
those judgments came from somewhere. But I think it's a it's only a few people who have those judgments, and then you end up with a whole community feeling judged. But it's cancel culture too. It's like the we are weird sure. social media stuff too. Like sure. I'll get I, I mean go look the comments on the yeah, yeah. hypocrite teaser. Like people will be like, oh, I can't believe you went snowmobiling. Like you burned more fuel than thirty days of resort skiing. And so part of it is just like fact checking people. You yeah, know, yeah. like a big day of sledding for me is like three, four gallons of gas, right? And we have issues with like carpooling and there's a lot of different things and the trucks that you need to pull the sleds. And there's, you know, there's, I'm not naive to like the breadth of the issue, but I also know when I'm sitting in my car for three and a half hours in bumper to bumper traffic, still with four people in my car to get up to Alta, like I know I'm burning more gas on that day. Again, let's, let's, let's not devolve into the, into the carbon footprint discussion. I, I mean, I think one of the right. one of the things that I loved about your film is the honesty of it, like that that everyone throughout, um, you know, was able to say like, yeah, they're you know, snowmobiles are a great tool. And and there's no question. I know a lot of people and you, I think, are one of them who who like begin to have this emotional connection like your pony. And <laughs> and it's fun. It's a blast. And I've known people who were like, you know, serious skiers who've stopped skiing because it's so much fun to ride sleds. Um but ultimately, it seemed like everyone in your film said, "Look, I understand there are impacts, and like, not forget the climate thing. We're in agreement. Like, there are impacts. It's noisy. It it smells. It's you know, it has these impacts on the people around and on maybe on wildlife. So, I guess my question, and it's an ongoing discussion, is just." You know, there are these systemic processes underway that we've been, I, I waded into this as a journalist. I mean, you knew me before this. Mm-hmm. I waded into it thinking like I had no, I mean, I didn't care about snowmobiles. I rode mm-hmm. them sometimes. I didn't. And and then it turns out there are all these people who've been working for decades to just try to carve out some limitations where they can, it's like, so I know I can go somewhere where I can hear that stillness that you also have in that film, then I it's and it seems like you appreciate it too, where there aren't sleds. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, when the Forest Service has a process that we've just been going through in your neck of the woods, mm-hmm. saying, like, hey, let's all sit down, let's break down these barriers, let's figure out, let's look at a map. Where can people go on snowmobiles? Where can people go on Nordic skis to know that they can find that quiet? And just that alone created a war basically in in your area <laughs> yeah and and i mean like death threats and you know mm-hmm. all that judgment that people have been feeling they put it back on the other person and everybody's instead of just saying oh wow wouldn't it be like it would be so easy to just you know i sat down at some point with some sledders at the final phase of that planning process and and we were kind of in agreement that like wouldn't it be cool if two of the seven or so north-facing shoots on Castle Peak were set aside for just downhill traffic. So you could still sled up and drop somebody off and they ski down, but you can't high mark up two or three, like a couple. And, you know, it'd be, how would you enforce it? I don't know. It's like a community thing. And and everybody in the room was like, yeah, that might, that probably would be better for everybody. But ultimately nobody was willing to agree. So how do we, I think that the, I think that the land access stuff is, is, really complicated and i think it is really polarized because again like those that muck has been being slung for a while now right so you're dealing with emotions left over from somebody else's crap from 
years ago, probably. I think that, um, I think overall, I mean, I think again, like real, there's so many other things that relate to this, right? Like what we're seeing with the e-bikes versus the pedal. And I think like the biggest thing is like trying to get on a page where we can not be so angry with each other so that we can all be respectful of all the different users um, in in the mountains, you know? Like I hate when I'm climbing on my mountain bike that's not an e-bike and some e-biker like rams my back tire and and makes me get off the trail when I'm in the middle of a hard climb versus like hanging back and being like, hey, I'm on an e-bike, take your time, would love to pass whenever it's convenient for you, right? But he's already pissed because he's already getting told he can't come on this trail and he can't come over here and he can't do this. And I think that that's kind of what's going on with, you know, the sledding situation. Like I haven't tracked the breadth of the issue in this region for a long time because I haven't owned a sled for a long time. Um, but I think that it's also hard to like pin all the issues on one user group too, right? Like there's huge noise Absolutely. pollution from I-80 and like the thing with the Absolutely. sheep in Jackson, like we're not the people that decided to put that airport in the national park, like good grief. Like you you think a ski tours bum the sheep out. So, so is the 747, <laughs> you know? Um, and I, I know like there are these little things, but it's just, um, trying to get to a place and again like to me like because my world is climate change and is you know carbon-based fossil fuel like that is where my energy towards learning and getting educated is i find it frustrating to be so wrapped up in so much energy fighting about who gets to use the forest when it doesn't really matter a lot if the force is just going to burn down, right? Sure. Like, but so there's, but there's also not, this, not to yeah. shift it back to that, but like, I yeah, know yeah. that there's biodiversity problems. I know that there's impact problems. I think, I do think there is some fact checking to be done about the actual impact of different user groups and understanding that, like, I think the user group of like backpackers, for example, that have terrible mountain etiquette is also very very impactful like my experience when i go backpacking out to paradise or something nowadays it's awful it's disgusting yeah, yeah. or the dog walkers with their little plastic bags that they leave sure out. and so yeah, I think no it's like, all it's all of it i i mean i guess you know ultimately i feel like part of what you're speaking to that i that really resonates to me is this like you can't blame yourself you can't blame other people like you need to come together not, and if we could start with the premise of like hey we're all flawed here like, it's not that you have a bigger carbon footprint or that you, you know, maybe you make more noise than I do, but that's totally cool. I'm not trying to, like, get rid of your capacity to make noise, but can you leave me some room to not have to hear the noise? Like, or and, at and least if, is be there respectful a way... when you're interacting, you know? Like well, when, and I think generally, I mean, and that ends up. That and high, high marking is an issue. As somebody who's yeah. trying to sled and ski, like if somebody high marks my line, I'm pissed for sure. So I mean, <laughs> I, listen, we I mean we, everybody's got their gripes, and you just laid out a couple. I laid out a couple. It's totally that's like the here and now of of public lands use, which is different from the climate change issue, but it's still like every year this is what Related. we do. Like we we have to live together as people, and there are more and more of us out there. And so, how do we solve these problems? I think is 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 really important, and and that's. That if that's dividing us on the bigger, you know, so that we're not coming together for the bigger issues, I think it's something that we should address. That's that's my pitch. 
I mean, and that's my hope too. Like that, just that idea, that conversation. Yeah. So I, I guess want, I want everybody to see that like we are, whether we're talking about a, a land access issue or a carbon pollutant issue, like we're all on the same team. Yeah. Like I had a really impactful experience, you know, part, part of the, part of the outdoor state thing is this thing, Powell, Powell calls it common ground, right? Like that, yeah. that thing that we all have in common that can hopefully rise above all the differences is this like feeling this soul reviving thing that happens for all of us anytime we're in the outdoors doing whatever it is we like to do whether we're birding whether we're hunting you know whether whatever we're doing like we're all getting something out of it and i i had this experience i was in dc with pow a few years back and we were going into this meeting with a republican congressman from florida and i'm like oh my god what am i gonna talk about with this person like i'm sure I hate everything he likes, right? Like I'm sure that there's nothing. Da, 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 da. And so we go in and like we're very well trained on like what to say. And so we immediately kind of start talking about the outdoors and he starts talking about the Everglades and what he does down there. And that's like when it clicked for me is like whatever he's getting out of what he's doing in the Everglades, his face looks exactly the same as mine does when I'm talking about skiing. Right. And so like that to me, that equalizer, right? And I think it's important in the in the public lands conversation too, where it's like we're actually we're all on the same team. Yep. And the problems we're facing are so, so major that like we really, really, really need to come together and realize that and go into all of these things, go into every day, every talk about solutions, all of it with that like common understanding and common respect for one another. And totally. just know that like whatever, you know, the Nordic skier is getting out of the day, like they're having the same, you know, they're they're doing it for the same reason that that the super gnarly sledder is you know like it's it's all the same thing inside our hearts and i think naomi's quote at the end of my film about like why we're all doing this you know like we are doing this to preserve humanity and the people that are going to get totally slapped by climate change that will never ski they will never snow like snowmobile they probably have very little time to ever even be in the outdoors however like why are we living we're living for those rejuvenating moments you know like that's we can't take that away from people and we can't lose it because we are too scared to act, right? Right, right. You know? Yep. And uh, yeah, I mean, we were in a collaborative down here on the Inyo at the very beginning of that process that tore Tahoe apart. And and one of the things that, you know, we had a facilitator, Austin McInerney, who's awesome. He's done a lot of mountain bike collaborative work, too. Um and, you know, he came to the table at the very beginning with this charter, and I wish I had all 10 principles in my head, but one of the ones that was, to me, most resonant was, like, not impugning the motive, the motivations of others. Um, you know, it was just, it was a, another crystallization mm -hmm. of all the stuff that you're exploring in your film, just basically mm -hmm. not judging other people. Mm -hmm. And if we can, and and you're right about these decades of baggage that some people have, you know, that has to get dropped Somehow we have to come at it and say, you know, at least in the public land sphere, you know, it's a finite amount of space. We're trying to be inclusive. We're trying to let everybody do everything that they want here. Some, some of us, all of us are going to have to sacrifice to some degree. And, and it has to be not about, you know, we're banning all of this or taking all of this off the plate for some, you know, nobody gets prohibited. It's just about like, how do we move people around in a way that keeps everyone with enough access to to do what they want to do and and fulfill their 
their dreams out there on the public lands. Yeah. And like, how do we even get people to, in the shared spaces that exist already, just maybe act in a way that's less inflammatory to the situation anyway? Like, can we all just play a little nicer together? And again, like, so much of like my focus is so much more on like the carbon side of things than like the actual land use side of things, you know? And I think that it, I'm just saying if we're going to bring the outdoor state together, we gotta, we gotta, but that's every, every snowmobiler I talked to about coming on board with a POW project, they were like, I don't, I don't think so. Environmentalists hate us. They want to close our access. They don't want us out there. And I'm like, okay. I understand why you feel that way. And I understand how things in the past have made it look that way or have even played out that way, you know? Um, But I think that what POW is finding is that like making sure that like those things aren't too conflated and that like um, they're, they are, there's, they intersect for sure. And they're very related, but I think that, um, Blanket stating that, like, if you are a motorized user, you're not welcome to the climate solution conversation is going to pigeonhole us. And I think that, like, the generations of the access issues bleeding into, like, you know, what if Pow wants to start a motorized group, right? We have Pow Climb, we have Pow Trail. What about Pow Moto? And, like, would people even be willing to get on board with that? Would people pallet that, you know? And, like, how do we get to a place where they will? Can there be a Pow? F- you know, fishing game, you know, like those aren't people that are, they, the, the hunters and fishers, the angler community, they are the original conservationists, right? Like they started so much of that work, but in our current era, like you don't think of a hunter as an environmentalist, even though they are, they are, but, but a lot of uh, non-mountain people that talk about environmentalism or whatever, you know, anybody that's gone out into the mountains with uh, a hunter knows that they are an environmentalist, but we just need to make sure that like these divisions aren't cut so deep that we can't like see the forest through the trees, you know? Totally. I just, I think we all have to come to the table willing to compromise and listen to the others. That's yeah. And that all starts by all of us kind of putting their fingers down, you know? Because yep. the blaming, the shaming, the guilt, that is what, you know, these bigger industries that are driving the direction of our planet, that, that's what they're hoping we keep doing because it's wildly distracting. Yes, it you is. You know? <laughs> well, cool. Thank you so much for your time. It's awesome to talk yeah. to you. Uh, where do people see the film? Yeah, so right now The Hypocrite is running in some film festivals and some tours. You can um, kind of follow myself, Amy Ski, Protect Our Winners, or TGR kind of for updates on that. And the the film will be available online for everybody to watch in mid-February. So those kind of details are a little little dynamic. Again, sure. peek behind the filmmaking curtain. It's not always a smooth or perfect process either. Um, but just, yeah, stay tuned. Again, like my social will be definitely the best place to find that, but um, it'll also, um, it's, it's a Teton Gravity Research film. So it'll be at some point on their YouTube, uh, featured on all their social channels on their website. Um, so between myself, POW, and TGR, like you will be able to find out when we finally release it. And also maybe if there's a, another screening, you know, near you, we're hoping to get a couple of public screenings off the ground in some mountain communities. And we're trying to pair the screenings with panel discussions, you know, with locals and scientists and myself. So um, it's a good place. The, the film honestly, just hopefully starts 
my, my whole goal with it is it sparks an idea and a conversation. You know, it, it doesn't unfortunately lay out any perfect solutions, but I hope that we can just initiate a new way to think about things and hopefully include others in talking about it. You know? Well, it certainly sparked a good conversation today. So thanks <laughs> yeah. for making the time and yeah. uh, thank we'll you. Talk soon. See you out see you out in the woods this winter. Hey, it's Emily, producer of Trailbreak Radio and Winter Wildlands Alliance's Operations Coordinator. That's a wrap for this bonus episode of Trailbreak Radio, brought to you by Winter Wildlands Alliance. I'd like to extend a special thank you to Mammoth Brewing Company and Ski Kind Mountain Lager for sponsoring this episode. A big thank you as well goes out to our host, David Page, Winter Wildlands Alliance's Executive Director, for guiding us through this insightful conversation. And of course, to Amy Ingerbretson for sharing her perspectives. Be sure to follow her on Instagram at Amy Ski to connect with her work. We couldn't have done it without Tess Goodwin, our audio engineer and editor, for her work crafting these narratives together. Our theme music is by Rattlesnake Breachers, featuring Winter Wildlands Alliance's Carrie McClay on mandolin. Follow Rattlesnake Breachers on Spotify and Instagram to support their work. If you're inspired by the stories and issues we discuss on Trailbreak Radio, consider becoming a member of Winter Wildlands Alliance, donating, or exploring more of our work at winterwildlands.org. If you're interested in other films similar to Hypocrite, check out Winter Wildlands Alliance's Backcountry Film Festival. The 19th annual Backcountry Film Festival is a screening this year of documentaries and ski movies about athletic pursuit in the mountains, artistic vision, friendship, and how the snow sports community is adapting to a changing environment. Look for an upcoming screening in your city or watch virtually using the link in the show notes. Thank you for joining us today. Stay tuned for more episodes. And remember, whether you're skiing, snowshoeing, or simply enjoying the winter wilderness, we're all a part of the same outdoor state. See you on the trails.